0: morning. Is anybody outside yesterday? We've kind of had a fortunate summer. Seemed like it hasn't been. We haven't had too many days like that. How many of you would have uh, would have liked to have been under a shade tree and had some shade over you if you were outside yesterday? Yeah, shade is good, right? Well, you know, I've realized here lately part of my duties out at the college, I serve as, as the, the new director of athletics and men's basketball coach, did you know that if I throw shade on you, that's really a bad thing? If I'm throwing shade on you, right? Russ probably already knew that. He's up, he's up on what the kids are saying these days, right? Did, how many of you knew that if I threw shade on you, that was a bad thing? Nobody knew that? So we had a couple, a couple that know that, that that means I'm disrespecting you, right? I'm dissing you. I'm not showing you love if if I'm throwing shade on you. Kinda of like if something's stupid, then it's good. Right? Because I thought that stupid was not good. But apparently stupid is good if it's used in a certain context. Have you, have you noticed things like that? Are there, are there slang or words that we use today that are very different maybe from what we thought that they meant, and we say it and we're completely out of touch? I ran across a couple of other things here that I thought was interesting. The word nice actually used to mean silly, foolish, and simple. If you called someone nice. Silly, foolish, and simple. So maybe when people say that you're nice, they're really not giving you a compliment. You thought they were complimenting you. Silly, meanwhile, actually meant uh, in its earliest form, it referred to things worthy or blessed. And then it kind of started to become meaning vulnerable, weak, and now the silly that it is today. Awful. Awful really used to mean something worthy of all be in complete awe of something. When today, when you use the word awful, is that how we refer to it as? No. And so, a couple of things that I I really, uh, over this past week, in preparing for, for this week, some of those thoughts were coming in and brought those different terms to mind, but there's something that was really on my on my heart and mind this week, just kind of struggling through, that I'll be honest with you, I really don't want to share about. I don't care to open this conversation. But I feel like to be obedient, before we dive into our actual passage that I want us to get in today, um, that I think for me to be obedient, then, then I need to. You know, yesterday, downtown... Do mind go downtown? Yeah. We uh we had an event here and, and and thankfully I think it was very uneventful, which I think was good, but we had we had some of our own I had friends that that work either as firefighters or in the police department that were called to be on the ready. Cuz we've seen in our national news some of these events, some of these some of these groups that are um that are holding and hosting these rallies to under the guise of supporting a particular way of life or supporting a certain statue or a flag or a banner are really using a lot of that as a guise for a lot of hate speech okay for for a lot of just out and out racism you know when whenever you're calling the Ku Klux Klan, to, to come in and to be a part of your event, it's really hard to justify that you're really just trying to protect your southern heritage, isn't it? Isn't that hard to defend that statement? And so some of my friends were called upon to come in and to defend and to be ready uh, to protect if there were some. And so I think it was Friday night I sent a text to many of those just saying, hey, I'm praying for you tomorrow, praying that all goes well. And it did. And so it, it, but it just got me to thinking throughout the week and thinking about that is where are we as believers in that? How educated as believers are we in this whole culture that we're involved with? We need to be very careful, especially as Southern believers that do have a Southern heritage that there are things, there are banners, there are symbols, there are words that meant one thing many, many, many years ago that means something very different to certain groups of people today. And for us to be ignorant of that fact and to try to just say that, well, it's just a Southern tradition... That's not what I mean by it. That's all well and good, and I believe that that is very much true. But if there is a huge group of people, and if there is a nation, that there is something so hatred, and there is something so offensive, tied to that very same thing, we need to be very careful as believers where we stand with that. Now, Scripture speaks all throughout that as believers, there are going to be times, there are going to be words, there are going to be things that we do and say that will be offensive to the world. The cross is offensive. And frankly, I don't care who I offend with the cross. But I don't think we need to put traditions and southern heritages and some of those types of ideals on the same level with the cross. Does that, does that make sense? Do you hear my heart and what I'm trying to say here? I'm not saying that any of us or any one of you are, are, are right or wrong for any of those things. And I'm not saying that the flag, the Confederate flag or a Confederate statue commemorating a Civil War battle. I'm not saying that any of those things in particular are in, in their, um, their one instance are necessarily wrong. But if if your support in some of those just things and traditions links you to a certain group that then causes another person to stumble and may not come to Christ because of where they see you aligned with, at that point, it's an issue, isn't it? At that point, doesn't it become... A stumbling block? In 1 Corinthians, turn to chapter 8 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There was an issue here of of traditions and what was permissible or non-permissible on some certain things. And beginning in verse 1, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols... We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols. Okay, so do we know what were, what had happened was there would, there were these idols. They were not the true and living God. People would come and sacrifice animals to these idols. So then there's this question, that's that's good meat. <laughs> it's good meat that they had just sacrificed, right? Why should that go to waste? So, in other words, there's this controversy here of should we eat that? Can we eat that? Is it somehow sacred? Well, what is an idol? To us as believers, what is an idol? Tommy, it's 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 nothing. It is nothing. So, but if it um. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God. What he's saying there is he's not saying that there are many gods. He's saying there are many little g gods. There are many things and statues that people want to claim to be their God. But as for us as believers, we know that there is but one. Verse 7, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol, until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat it, nor the better if we do eat it. He's saying it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he's weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, even if it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother To stumble. And I think that that's a long passage there, but but the point of it is the issue of the meat was not the issue, was it? He's saying we would be okay, we would be right, it would be permissible for us to eat this meat because there is no idol, there is no God. It was, it matters not. However, if me eating that, if me taking part in that, in that practice, in that tradition, if it causes another to stumble, if it causes offense to another, if in any way, shape, form, or fashion, it links me to a group that is not Christ honoring and is not lifting up the name of Christ, we should avoid that. Does that make sense? Do you hear what I'm? And please know that I am not in any way, you know, saying that That we, you know, we need to stand, that we have all done terrible things because we're Southerners and we owe all of this to a group of people. That's not my point at all. But when you look around at certain groups that are using certain traditions and symbols and certain points of Southern heritage to be this rallying cry for something that is not Christ honoring, for something that is not who we stand for as a body, as believers, and does not lift up and glorify him, we need to be very careful in how we align ourselves. And so that that was just something this week that I have, and like I said, I really didn't care to, to share that. That's not an issue I wanted to dive off into for sure. Um, but I just couldn't get it off my heart and mind, so I've done my part. Now you do what you will with it, Okay? Okay, now let's talk about what we're really here to talk about. Uh, We're going to stay in Hebrews. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11. You know, a couple weeks ago we saw in chapter 12 that we should run with endurance because uh, because of the faith that we see in chapter 11. Then last week we examined the definition of faith that was given, up, given to us in the first verse of chapter 11. And remember, we saw that faith is a practical thing. Faith is not a supernatural feeling. Faith is not just this thing that makes the hair on the back of our neck stand up and gives us chill bumps when a cool song comes on. That's not what faith is. Faith is a practical Thing that God has given us, and remember the very definition says, it is substance and it is proof. It is not an eerie, in-the-air feeling. It is, a real, it is a real thing with substance, and, substance and proof. Faith allows us to see what others cannot. This week we're going to see that faith enables us to do what others cannot do. Just as faith allows us to see what others cannot see... This morning, we're going to see that faith also allows us to do what others cannot do. So let's look in chapter 11. We'll start in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. For by it, the men of old gained approval. Let's camp there for just a minute before we move on. And as we move on, we see many of these men of old that he tells us about. But for by what did the men of old gain approval? For by it. What's the it referring to? Yeah, we're jumping right back there to verse 1. He just gave us the definition of what faith was, and he says, for by it, for by faith, for by this substance, for by this proof, this is how... They have gained approval. Gained approval from whom? God. God. This is how they pleased God. So as you read through chapter 11, what do you see is the recurring theme through chapter 11 as you glance through there? Yeah. How many different people do we see? Several, right? Right? How many, it doesn't, the emphasis is not on their actions or on their deeds, but it's on their what? It's on their faith. And we know that faith is what? Is it anything that you do? No. Faith is the substance and the proof of who God is. So again, we come back to, even in this chapter 11, where it seems like we're, we're laundry listing here all of these wonderful men of old. Even in that, it's pointing all of the glory back to who? Back to God. Because the, it was by faith that they received this approval. Skip. Just We're going to skip and then come back. Look over in verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So there in verse 6, he just reiterates what he just said in verse 2, that for by faith, they are pleased to God. They met the approval of God. These biblical heroes. Remember that faith is not a churchy feeling we get because of our favorite praise song. It's the substance and proof that he is who he says he is. It's never about us but it's always about Him. Why is it then, when we think about our own Christian life and we think about that of others, we spend more time thinking about either how we feel, if we were emotional during worship that day or not, or what we've done. The checklist of how many good deeds how many tasks have we done? How many? How much money have we given? How many times have we mowed the churchyard this year versus how many times they've mowed the churchyard this year? Does that have anything to do with where we are and whether we're pleasing God? I mean, here, in this passage, it really breaks stuff down even for simple-minded people like me it gives us a very clear definition of what faith is, and then it says, it's by this that you please God. Do we want to be pleasing to God? I mean, isn't that what it's about? And if that's not what it's about, what are we doing? And he gives us a pretty, pretty clear definition here of what it's about and what, we're, what we should be looking for what we should be doing. For by it, the men of old gained approval. Verse 3. By faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Again, you know, back when we talked about our, our definition, and we said that as believers, we have faith when we can see what others cannot see. Here in chapter 11, when he starts to give a a list here of all of the people and all of those uh, men of old, as he calls them, that are to be the examples of faith, what does he start with? He doesn't even start with a person. He starts with what? Creation. The very first one he lists here is creation. So now we've seen it multiple times where he says in the very definition that we should be able to see God in all things, and then when he starts listing out some examples for us, he starts with creation. That we need to be able to see the unseen in creation. If he keeps repeating something, to me that probably means it's important. Right? And again, I'm not a real smart guy, but that just makes a lot of sense. So as we look around, we need to be seeing in everything the fingerprints of God. Then he goes, beginning in verse 4. Let's go through verse 4 and 5. We see his first two individuals that he talks about. By faith, substance, proof. Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous God testifying about his gifts and through faith substance proof though he is dead he still speaks alright what do we know about Abel Old Testament history lessons what do we know about Abel what's that Cain killed Abel. Okay. So he, we know that Abel here, the very first person that's mentioned in our Hall of Faith passage, is a murder victim. What else do we know about him? Them, he was Adam's, Adam's son? Okay? What's that? He was righteous wine. What's that? Okay, because he gave a blood sacrifice. Now, what do we know about Abel versus Cain as far as his profession and what he did? He, he gave the first fruits. He gave okay, but what was Abel specifically? Okay, okay, and what was Cain? Well, well, that's not fair, right? If Abel's the one, he had the sheep. <laughs> right? Huh? He could have gave better fruits than what he did. God said it there. What's that? God said it Yeah. W- was God worried about fair or unfair? God has a standard. This is the standard. This is the sacrifice that's to be given. Are we all to give according to our circumstances and what's more convenient? to us at that time, or does God have a standard? Now, it's a lot easier for us to just say that, that, you know, we get to have this sliding scale, right? We get to have this sliding scale that God grades on a curve, okay, because of where you are and where you come from and your education level and this and that. If that's the case... Do you want to serve a God like that? Because at any time, do you know where you are on that sliding scale? There's a standard. There's a standard that was set for the sacrifice that was expected, for what was given. Abel was, was faithful with that because he saw what was happening. Let's look at verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. We know that he was pleasing to God because of his what? Faith, because of the substance and proof that was all around him. That is how we please him. What was Enoch? How did he leave this earth? God just took him up, right? That's kind of cool. Just walking and he was no more. God took him up. How did Enoch get taken up and how did his days on earth end differently than Abel's did? They had two very different ends to their story here on earth, right? Yet both of them are called faithful. You remember a couple of weeks ago, We talked about each of us having our own paths to run. Each of us have our path to run with endurance. And there are going to be stretches in my path that's uphill and muddy, and stretches of your path that's going to be downhill and grassy. Both of us need to be found faithful along that path. Both of these men were found faithful. Both of these men are called out generations later in Scripture. They're called out and mentioned by name so that even today in 2017, we're studying who they are and what they were. Both of them were faithful. Both of them pleasing to God. Their ending here on earth was very, very different. So I I think sometimes we get... Have you ever played the pity party game? That God, look what I'm doing. I do this many devotions. I come to church this many times a month. I give this percentage of my income, and so because I've done that, then I should get this. And I see other people that things seem to be better for them, and I'm pretty sure they're not doing any of those things because I've been watching them, so I can tell. Right? Are you any different than Abel or Enoch? If these men that God decided he wanted to call out by name in his word met two very different ends, should we expect to all have the same path? I don't think so. To me, it kind of seems silly almost to even expect that, doesn't it? God has a race for each of us to run. And there are different stretches within that. Ours is to be faithful. Ours is to have faith. Again, notice he does not list the deeds and actions here as much as it is the deeds and actions were a result of faith. They were a result of understanding that definition that faith is having these substance and proof of who he is. Now let's look at verse 6. Verse 6, he really lays it out for us. He makes it as clear as possible as to where we should stand as either a believer or an unbeliever. He makes it very clear for us as to if our aim, if our goal is to please God he gives us that recipe and without faith it is impossible to please him let's stop there without faith it is impossible not very difficult not you're going to struggle It is impossible to please him without faith. Doesn't ask about what percentage of your income you're giving, does it? Doesn't ask how many times you're coming to church. Doesn't ask what positions you hold in the body. Doesn't ask how many committees you serve on, how many charities you give to. By faith, it is impossible to please God. Do you want to please God? I mean, the I mean, the churchy answer is yes, right? I mean, that's what everybody's supposed to nod, because if you don't, people will look around, and then they'll be talking about you. <laughs> they'll be one of the ones that we're talking about. Well, John did nod. I saw. Jason asked if you wanted to please God, and John did not nod. Evaluate your faith. Evaluate your faith. And again, I don't mean when we talk about faith. Remember, we're not talking about this weird hocus-pocus, chill-bump feeling of, man, all these grand illusions of hoping things that are going to happen. We're talking about a practical substance and proof of who God is. Amen. Where is the substance and proof in your life that he is? When you examine your life, and maybe more importantly, when others look at your life, is there substance and proof that he is? That he is existent in your life? That he is real? When you look around, do you only see the fingerprints of God in everything that's around? Because without faith, without that substance, without that proof, it is impossible to please God. I mean, I'm afraid even in my own life, there have been many stretches when I've been doing a lot of things to try to please God. But I can't promise you that there was substance and proof that he is. When others see your life, is it so evident that he is in your life? That he is working in your life? That he is your life? Is there that substance, that proof? Like I said, it's pretty. (laughs) He laid it out as clear as he could for us. Without that, it is impossible to please him. Might that describe why we're so frustrated oftentimes? Might that describe why church or churchy things become laborious or they become a burden, and we're frustrated with certain things in our life because we're trying, if we claim as believers that our aim is to please him, and so we're trying to reach our goal by doing something that's not getting us any closer to that result. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Now, let's look at this second part. For he who comes to God must. Now, we need to write these things down. I mean, if we are people that desire to be a people of God and desire to come to him, again, he is breaking it down for us. If there was one, there would be a whiteboard when he was writing this. Okay, he would be laying this out on the whiteboard for us. He's breaking it out in such Simple terms. For he who comes to God must, A, believe that he is. I love that statement. I love that. Believe that he is. That's one. And two, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. These are two points we need to understand. We need to have such a grasp of that they are just... They become who we are because they are ingrained in us. That we know in order to come to God, we must know that He is real that he is evident in everything that is around us, that he is a rewarder, meaning he is sufficient. So here's my question to you. When you examine your faith, when you examine the substance and the proof of who God is, in those dark, quiet places when you're alone, I don't mean the fake church smile that we have on Sunday mornings. I mean the real deal, talking to yourself in the shower kind of personal conversations that you have. Can you say, do you know that A, he is... And two, he is always enough. He is and he's always enough. Now before you agree, because I'm going to tell you, if I always believed that he was always enough, I don't know that I would be spitting my head in circles as much as as I am. I don't know that I would be chasing my own tail as much as it feels like that I am oftentimes. You ever feel that way? That, man, you are working hard to be working hard. Right? Because we've got to do this, and we've got to do this, and we've got to do this. He is, and he's always enough. Where are you with those two questions? How do you answer those two questions? If there's either of those that you can't answer emphatically, if there's either of those, that you're struggling with, if there's either of those that you know you're not there, it says those are the two prereqs. Those are the prerequisites to come to him. So without that, you are we talked about being in that cycle where you're in the mud in that race. That's where you are. You're just spinning out. And my guess is there's some here that feel like they've been running in the mud for a little while. And they don't really know what's going on. And truth be told, sometimes they just say, what are we doing? What am I doing? You can settle that today. By knowing that he is, he is real. He is evident. And instead of looking around at at creation and seeing only color and chaos, you can see him. And you need to know that he is always enough. And you will never be enough. And you can never do enough. But here in just a moment, we're about about to pray. Our praise team's going to come. They're going to lead us in a last song of worship. But I want to open up an opportunity to you. This altar will be open. There will be someone available if you want to visit with them. But you need to know how you answer those questions. Do you know that he is? Is all you see the fingerprints of God around you? And do you know that he's enough? Let's pray. Father, I believe that you are. Lord, I love the statement that you make in your scripture. Father, I love that phrase. He is. I love that we serve a God that does not have to justify. I love that we serve a God that does not have to list a resume, and a biography of accomplishments to gain the respect. But Father, you are the creator. Father, you are everything. And because of that, the simple statement that he is says all we need to know. Good morning. Good morning. Can you that? And Father, you are enough. Forgive us for where we have tried to look to other things. Forgive us for where we've tried to to work so hard to accomplish and to do things to gain that satisfaction. Lord, let our satisfaction be found only in you. Let our peace be found only in you. Father, even this morning, those that are here, I pray that if there are those that do not know the answer to those two questions, to those two prerequisites for coming to you, that Lord, they would nail down who you are and they would admit that you are enough. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, that because of the love that you had for us and that because of the desire that you had for us to come to you, became the sacrifice for my sin so that I could spend eternity with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen.